This is exactly right. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Wheeler really was a David versus Doherty's Goliath. He was an untested freshman senator who took on Washington's most cunning political operator, and yet he essentially won. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. A man is found dead from a gunshot wound in Washington, D.C. in 1923. He's an aide and a confidant to a powerful politician, the Attorney General of the United States. Was his death a murder or a suicide? Author Nathan Masters tells us the story at the center of his book, Crooked. Well, let's get into the story. Where does it make sense to you to start with which person? You've got several players happening here. Yeah, there are two big players, but I would actually start with somebody who's not one of them. I'd start with a man named Jess Smith, who was discovered dead of a gunshot wound almost 100 years ago to the day that we're recording this, uh, Memorial Day 1923, in the Attorney General's apartment, the bedroom of the Attorney General of the United States. And this man, Jess Smith, he was widely known around Washington as a, as a sort of a power player behind the scenes. Nobody really understood exactly what his relationship with the attorney general was. Nobody really understood exactly what he did. They just knew that he wielded a lot of influence. And this is the, the dead body that opens this mystery nonfiction novel, right? And it's a, it's a suspicious crime scene because first of all, the very first law enforcement officer on the scene is the director of what was then called the Bureau of Investigation, which later became the FBI, a man named Billy Burns. Smith's head was found seemingly stuffed into a wastebasket filled with burned papers, burned government documents. Burns, the the director of what became the FBI, somehow lost, maybe put lost in quotation marks, lost the handgun, lost the, the suicide weapon or murder weapon. And when he finally called local authorities onto the scene, he wielded a heavy hand in directing their investigation and directed them 
forcefully to a, a verdict of suicide or to a conclusion of suicide when there was really way too much going on for the conclusion to be that quick. Justice living with the Attorney General of the United States, for those of us who don't know, can we define what this person does and what is their sphere of influence like in government? What kind of power do they actually have? Are we talking about Jess Smith or the Attorney General? The Attorney General, just so we know who Jess Smith is influencing to begin with. Yeah, the Attorney General in the 1920s, especially today, but even in the 1920s, was a very powerful office. I mean, it it actually went back to the beginnings of the Republic, but the Attorney General was entrusted with the Department of Justice, which was created around 1870 to better enforce Reconstruction laws, (laughs) basically better enforce federal power in the defeated South. Around this time, the Attorney General, you know, he was the ultimate arbiter of prosecutorial decisions. He could step in and and say to a U.S. attorney in in one of the federal districts, don't prosecute this. He shepherded pardon applications through the federal government. Mm. He managed the Bureau of Investigation, which was the chief investigatory body of the federal government at the time, or still is today. Uh, He wielded tremendous power. And his friend, Jess Smith, worked, actually had a desk in the anteroom just off the attorney general's private office, wasn't on the government payroll, in fact, refused a job on the government payroll. And he was in there every day. He was seen with bundles of Department of Justice files um, under his arms. He was always in the, the Bureau of Investigations offices. Nobody knew quite what he did, but he was so close to power, people knew that he, he wielded big influence. Is there a confirmation, like a real confirmation, that they had an intimate relationship, these two men? And actually, now is probably a good time to introduce who the attorney general was at this time. Yeah, you just reminded me that I haven't named him yet. So the attorney general was Harry <laughs> was Harry Doherty. Um, he was a machine politician from Ohio. He was essentially Ohio's Republican political boss. And his pet project through most of his political career was shepherding a man named Warren G. Harding into the White House, a man that he, he plucked from obscurity, got elected to uh, as a lieutenant governor of Ohio, got elected to the U.S. Senate, and then Doherty engineered Harding's unlikely election in 1920 to the presidency. Uh, he was the definitive dark horse candidate, and yet he, he took the Republican nomination and he, took, uh, and he took the presidency in November. And Doherty, as his prize after engineering Harding's election— he claimed the office of attorney general. You know, he was technically a lawyer, although he was essentially a lobbyist or a political operator, Hmm. but he wanted the office of attorney general over anything else. When we talk in the wider context of presidents and corruption, of all the corrupt presidents we've had, would you put Harding in top five, top 10? Because his administration was a mess, a mess. It was a total mess. And if we're speaking in terms of administrations, and I think we can separate the president as a person from the administration, if we can just do that for a second, then yes, sure. it's in the top top three, at least. Oh. Now, there's no evidence that President Harding himself was complicit in any of the corruption. I mean, he's certainly responsible for everything that happened under his watch very late in, into his life. In fact, his last days, he, he really came to regret, I believe, um, letting these scandals fester beneath him or in his presidency. Okay. So we've got these two main people, the Attorney General Harry Doherty, and then you've got his assistant slash companion slash mystery man, Jess Smith. And Jess is the one who is found shot to death with his head in a waste paper basket in Doherty's apartment 
And what we want to talk about now is the specifics that we know of the relationship between Doherty and Smith, because I'm assuming at some point, either, you know, outwardly or behind closed doors, people are whispering if Doherty is responsible for this, since this is the closest person to Jess Smith, right? Yeah, immediately after Smith's death, those whispers began. Those rumors found their way through Washington and ultimately found their way to the ear of the senator who investigated Harry Doherty. But what we can conclude about their relationship behind closed doors, it's it's not much. Smith was referred to in in the day as Doherty's, you know, most intimate friend or partner in everything, which we can we can read as coded language for, you know, gay lovers. Mm-hmm. But there is no I didn't I didn't come across any conclusive evidence for that. I, I will say that the Hardings themselves, uh, Warren G. Harding and his wife Lawrence, the first lady, they treated them essentially as a couple. They invited them to all social functions. In fact, it's quite reminiscent of the, the relationship between J. Edgar Hoover and Clyde Tolson, hmm. where it was uh, probably an open secret that they were romantically involved, even if there wasn't a sexual component to it. But nobody really spoke about it openly, which made it really hard for me as a, as a writer and researcher to, to say anything conclusively about it. Well, let's talk about the quote-unquote investigation. I know you said Billy Burns with the Department of Justice arrived and immediately tries to frame this as a suicide. Mm -hmm. Is Doherty his boss, since Doherty is the attorney general and Billy Burns works for what would become the FBI? Is he a direct boss? Doherty is maybe not his direct supervisor, but effectively his, his supervisor, maybe not on the org chart. So one of Doherty's first things upon upon becoming attorney general was he he launched a reorganization of the Bureau of Investigation, which already had a competent, respected director. But he preferred uh, his own his own head of the Bureau of Investigation. In fact, uh, Billy Burns and and Harry Doherty were longtime friends. They had hmm. grown up together in Ohio. Uh, they had met each other when they were both launching into their respective careers. And there was a deep loyalty, a deep bond of loyalty between the two of them. In fact, uh, Burns played a big role in the 1920 presidential campaign. And we have to remember that Doherty was Harding's campaign manager. He actually functioned as Harding's campaign manager. Hmm. Billy Burns helped suppress numerous scandals that would have emerged about Harding's illicit relationships or his affairs with with, uh, multiple women, including women who had been keeping love letters from him, um, one who was raising Harding's love child. Billy Burns helped keep those stories quiet. You know, he he <laughs> he had people raid local police offices and steal police records, et cetera, that he paid them blackmail funds. Billy Burns was excellent at uncovering secrets, but also at keeping them. Okay. So it made sense. It made sense that Doherty would want that man installed as the head of the Bureau of Investigation. Somebody he could trust to do anything, care at the most sensitive assignments. So we cannot believe right now what Billy Burns is saying as sort of the lead detective in this. Do we have any objective information about the forensics at the scene, locked doors, the weapon that was used, the position of the body where the gun was? Do we have any kind of source that can be trusted at this point? Nothing. No, there's unfortunately there are no sources that that are surviving. There's ju- there are just references to sources, references to police records hmm. uh, that existed in the 1920s. There were subsequent investigations into this uh, crime scene long after the events of my book. But uh, unfortunately, those primary sources are just missing or presumably destroyed. What is your understanding of what the scene was like when Billy Burns arrives? And what does he see? Is it is it just, I mean, I'm just picturing Jess Smith slumped into this waste paper basket with burned papers filled to the top in a dramatic scene. Was there anything to add to that? 
yeah, there was a there was a bullet lodged into the door jam. I mean, the most yeah, the most dramatic element is that is that yeah, there were these burned government documents in the wastebasket. He was at the foot of the attorney general's bed. The carpet just soaked with blood. Hmm. It was a grisly scene, but Burns was no stranger to those. So, is there a possible way, knowing what you know, that this could have been a man who took his own life if there's a bullet in a door jam with the trajectory? Or where, where did the bullet enter his head? Yeah, it entered into his right temple. In fact, there were rumors going around. He was right-handed, but there were rumors going around that Either the bullet entered his left temple and he's right-handed or vice versa. So, hmm. and these rumors emerged immediately. There was a lot of suspicion which fueled those rumors. It was incorrect, actually. The trustworthy sources that I came across said that the the, the bullet entered the temple that you would expect if you were holding the, the, the gun with his natural hand. Can I assume that your untrustworthy sources would be the Hearst newspaper? <laughs> yeah. As I'm sure you know, back in the 1920s, there were overtly, explicitly partisan newspapers. It was yeah. quite common, right? I mean, like the Los Angeles Times was a Republican newspaper. And then you'd have, I mean, the New York Times was always sort of an impartial, the, the nonpartisan newspaper, but there were Republican, Democratic newspapers. And you always have to infer a little bit of spin when you're reading their reports. Which paper do you know, local paper, would be the paper that was really skeptical about this as a suicide? Because what happens? Does it hit the newspapers later that day or the next day that this powerful man who is very close to the attorney general, who is very close to the president, is dead in the attorney general's own apartment? It made national headline, front page headlines all across the nation. And I wouldn't say that there was any one paper that, that was particularly skeptical. They all acknowledged that there was a big element of mystery to this death. So what happens next? It comes out, it says there's a verdict of suicide. Does the coroner say this is definitively a suicide? Right. Eventually, local authorities did come onto the scene, the local D.C. police officers and the District of Columbia coroner, they ruled it a suicide. That was done almost immediately. In fact, it might have been, the certificate, of course, probably would have been signed later, but the coroner was on the scene and made that judgment there in the room. Okay. What is the next step? Does this story just die, so to speak, in the newspapers, or is there anything that ramps it up in the opposite direction? It dies in the newspapers for a while. It lingers in Washington gossip circles, Probably the American people are probably not aware of it or they've forgotten about it, but in Washington gossip circles, certainly. And uh, eventually we get to the other main character in this book, a man named Burton Wheeler, who's uh, elected to the U.S. Senate in 1922 and as a freshman senator decides he wants to launch an investigation into the Department of Justice and specifically into Attorney General Harry Doherty. And those rumors find his ear. You know, he's interested in anything he can find about potential wrongdoing in the Justice Department, but certainly the name Jess Smith, when whistleblowers are calling him, when um, sympathetic newspaper reporters get on the phone, the name of Jess Smith keeps coming up over and over. What is his beef with Doherty or Jeff Smith, whatever? What is the thing that's sticking in his craw about this story? Why attach himself <laughs> as a freshman senator where you're thinking he's just trying to ingratiate himself to the Senate? I'm assuming at this point, why go after such a powerful department? 
Yeah. So most freshman senators, you know, are, as Wheeler himself said, are expected sort of sit quietly in the back of the room, like, a, you know, yeah, well-bred children and just yeah. watch the, the old gray-haired deans of the Senate uh, do their thing and learn. And maybe after you've been elected a couple times, you can really start to play. Burton Wheeler didn't, didn't usually play by rules like that. He was no fan of tradition. You know, he, he first got the idea to target the Justice Department in 1922. While he was running for Senate, Attorney General Doherty, you know, he already had a reputation as being on the side of capital versus labor, right? He was on the side of big business versus the working man. And Burton Wheeler was a fierce progressive, strident progressive, which is a little surprising given that he comes from came from Montana you know, out in the West. But at the time, Montana had this really strong progressive streak. Burton Wheeler was a champion of organized labor. He had fought against corporate interest. He'd fought against the corporate monopoly, the mining company that controlled Montana state politics, both as a state legislator and then as the U.S. attorney for Montana. So that was the background. In 1922, Harry Doherty, as attorney general, orchestrates the most sweeping injunction ever imposed on American organized labor to end a nationwide railway strike. And this injunction prohibited strikers from even commenting to the newspapers for standing on soapboxes, right? Mm. And Wheeler saw a great injustice in that. He saw Attorney General Doherty as stepping in on the side of big business against the working man. And so he pledged on the campaign trail to, quote, get Doherty. And so when he arrived in Washington months later, that was his top priority. Wow. Okay. So what does Wheeler, in all of his digging around and, you know, nosing around to try to find information, what does he start to uncover, not just about corruption in Harding's administration or within the attorney general's office and with Doherty himself, but about specifically what happened with Jess Smith? Right. Yes. He, he came across a lot of a lot of stories, a lot of corruption stories. But with Jess Smith specifically, he actually got a tip that Jess Smith's ex-wife, widowed ex-wife, I don't know what the term for that would be. Oh, wow. Okay. But, um, <laughs> that came out of nowhere to me. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's talk about yeah. that for a second. Yeah. So Jess Smith had been married for a very short time. It was a brief, ill-fated marriage about 12 years before the events of this book. He was married to a woman named Roxy Stinson, who uh, lived in the same town in Ohio called Washington Courthouse. For reasons that might be obvious, the marriage just didn't work out. If if he really was gay or or whatever the term would be at, at that time, she filed for divorce against him, claiming uh, cruelty. But but nobody could believe that he was uh, guilty of cruelty against any woman, but especially this woman that he very clearly adored. And in fact, after they divorced, they remained the closest of friends. And when Jess Smith eventually went to Washington, he would make frequent trips back to Ohio and just share, just gossip about all the things he and Harry Doherty had been doing in Washington, uh-huh. all the, quote, deals that they'd been making. Once he came back with a money belt filled with $75,000 in cash, which is a lot of money today. It was certainly a lot more back then. Gave her just as gifts, sent $100 bills loose in, in an envelope, um, gave her blank stock certificates that had been freshly issued by these corporations that had been doing business with American government. So Roxy Stinson, Jess Smith's ex-wife knew about all of this stuff, or she, she had inklings. Huh. And then when Wheeler found out that she knew, he made it um, his priority to get out to Ohio, and he personally served a Senate subpoena on her to make her his investigation's first witness. Wow. Not to geek out on 1910 to 1922 divorce proceedings, but I wonder, 
before we talk about what Wheeler found out, I wonder if cruelty is actually equal to alienation of affection in the 1910s. Mm. I'm not sure they would have had that phrase, alienation of affection. You know what I mean? Cruelty might have been withholding the intimacy between a man and a woman. That seems pretty likely to me, but who knows? That's a very good point. Hadn't considered it. That's probably the case. Yeah, if they're friends afterwards, that's what I would think. Mm -hmm. Boy, the verbiage for... (laughs) How they used it. Any sort of legal document is very different than now. Okay, so Wheeler travels, and he meets with Roxy, the widowed ex-wife, whatever we want to call her. What does she say about her ex-husband, who she's very fond of, it sounds like? The one time she's reluctant to speak out, she doesn't really want to sully his memory. And we're talking about, you know, Wheeler found Stinson maybe about nine months after Smith died. So she doesn't want to sully his, his memory, but... While this is all happening, Harry Doherty and his cronies, especially like some people in the Senate, are trying to to lay all the blame for the, the rumors of impropriety within the Justice Department on Jess Smith. And she thinks that's unfair because she knows that it wasn't just Jess Smith doing this because Smith had been telling her over and over, yeah, Harry and I are doing this or, you know, we're working on this deal. So she knew that Doherty was complicit in anything that, that Smith was involved in. So she wanted to set the record straight. It took a Senate subpoena to get her to, to Washington. But when she, you know, when she was sworn in and, and, but before the committee, she basically told everything. And she was, she she remembered, she had a sharp memory. She remembered it all. She was a really compelling witness. All of the newspapers described her as, you know, like the most attractive woman in, in Washington courthouse or town. Mm, of course they did. <laughs> of course they did, yeah. Some of the reports are, are a little... Um, Sexualized, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Really gross. Yeah. Well, let me go back real quick. So are we saying, unless I'm misunderstanding you, that a year after his likely companion lover died via suicide, that Harry Doherty is now blaming a lot of things on Jess Smith, using him as a scapegoat for things that happened within the Justice Department. Is that right? Yeah, not Harry Doherty himself. Um, okay. He wasn't even at the time acknowledging any of these accusations against him. So what you know what happened was Senator Wheeler stood up on the floor of the Senate and gave this speech. Basically, this, what I would say, irresponsible speech, repeating verbatim all of these rumors that he'd heard without any evidence to back him up. Hmm. And then Doherty's allies responded, and Doherty's allies decided to use Jess Smith as the scapegoat. What were the accusations exactly? I mean, what are we talking about? Money or covering up all these investigations you're talking about that people covered up secrets or dug up other secrets? Yeah, I mean, Wheeler had heard from a whistleblower at the Federal Trade Commission that the FTC had recommended dozens of cases for prosecution to the Justice Department. And under Doherty, the Justice Department had prosecuted none. Um, From that too, he had been too cozy with, with criminals. And these were unsubstantiated rumors at the time, but with organized crime, with bootleggers, right? Prohibition was a huge thing then. And bootleggers were, especially the bigger operators within bootlegging, were trying to find some angle on the federal government. And there were rumors that were later backed up that Doherty was involved in that. Give me some samples. I know we talked a little bit about what Roxy said, but on the Senate floor, you said she was very composed and very credible. Mm -hmm. What were the things that she said that she heard directly from Jess Smith or, you know, just witnessed just materially there? So 
there were certainly details that made her testimony compelling, such as the $75,000 in a money belt. Mm. But she revealed schemes that were kind of bizarre. You know, for instance, she accused Harry Doherty and Jess Smith, I suppose, of orchestrating this criminal conspiracy to countervent a federal statute against the interstate distribution of boxing films. <laughs> and this was a statute that had been enacted about 15 years earlier, it was it was amid this racist hysteria against the the black fighter Jack Johnson. I think I'm getting that right. But in any case, there was this federal law in the books against taking a fight film from one state to another. And Doherty and Jess Smith were huge boxing fans. And it seemed that for no reason other than Doherty thought it would be fun, he uh, came up with this scheme to, to get around that law. And uh, using his friends, using his influence as attorney general, he had his friends distribute these films. There were, there were people who sort of took a nominal fine. There was this big fight in New Jersey. The fight film was moved to New York. It was, ex- it was exhibited there. The person in charge of the exhibition was prosecuted and fined. But then Doherty would make sure that it was just a small fine. It was, you know, he'd pay 50 bucks and he'd be off the hook. Yeah. And Doherty, like, there was evidence that he received kickbacks from the scheme. But I think he, my personal take is that he uh, he just really enjoyed doing it. You know, he was a, at heart, he was a schemer and he thought, oh, this would be fun to, <laughs> to find a way around this federal law. What is the reaction after Roxy's testimony here in the Senate? What is the reaction from the lawmakers who are witnessing this? So the, the committee was, uh, it was five senators. It was, okay. uh, you know, three, three Republicans and two Democrats. And pretty much everybody, despite the partisan breakdown, was shocked. Um, even the most conservative Republican who you would expect to be most sympathetic to Doherty, he seemed sort of swept off his feet by this testimony. And there were accusations beyond just this bizarre fight film that, that Doherty done favors for these companies that were under investigation uh, they basically quashed investigations and received stock certificates as as a result. Um, there were allegations that he had been involved with bootleggers, that he'd been doing, quote, whiskey deals, which was the language that she used. Um, so all of this was quite shocking, right? The, the gist of her testimony was that the man who was supposed to be upholding the supremacy of federal law was doing everything he could to undermine it for whether it was for personal gain or just for for pleasure, um, he was acting exactly the opposite of, of how the attorney general should act. So, yes, most senators were outraged. And in fact, this became a huge national spectacle, right? Not just the senators, but the American public were outraged by what was going on. They were shocked. They had never really before considered just how dangerous the office of attorney general could be. But Wheeler, through his investigation and through his his use of the, the national media and this emerging national media that, it, that it involved tabloid newspapers and radio, the American public was able to follow along in almost in real time as this scandal unfolded. It was really the first time in American history that that could happen in real time. So is Jess Smith's suicide talked about also in front of this committee during all of this? Are there people who have been whispering about this and now the voices are louder because of all of this? Yeah. Actually, one of the first mysteries or first issues that Wheeler dispensed with, right? He had Jess Smith's ex-wife on the stand and she was herself torn about what had actually happened. But, you know, she was able to recount some of the odd ways that Smith had been acting in the days before his death. Um, Harry Doherty essentially betrayed Jess Smith, and he actually did hold him up to be the scapegoat. Ugh. Doherty had been in office for two years. There were already these rumors of wrongdoing were emerging. Mm-hmm. Warren Harding called him into the Oval Office 
and said, you know, you need to do something about Jeff Smith. I'm hearing all these these wild allegations. Both of them knew, I believe, that that Doherty was probably complicit in that. But the understanding between the two men was that we're going to pin this on Jeff Smith. So Doherty essentially banished Jeff Smith from the Justice Department, from his personal life, from Washington. And Jeff Smith, who was not only an intimate friend and perhaps lover of Doherty, but he idolized Doherty, right? He lived for Doherty. Doherty was his purpose in life. When Doherty banished him, his life was shattered, right? Like his son went out. So he went back to Ohio. Roxy Simpson tried to console him, but uh, he was a broken man. And so the narrative of suicide then became kind of compelling. And, And in fact, probably that revelation was more disturbing about Harry Doherty than allegations that that Doherty had had him knocked off or killed, right? Um, Doherty had betrayed the closest person in the world to him. Roxy Stinson said that she considered him morally responsible for his death, even if not legally. What is the time frame of when Jess Smith returns to Ohio and is comforted by Roxy because he's rejected by Harry Doherty and when he obviously returns and mm-hmm. is somehow in this man's apartment and then dead with a gunshot wound to the head, face down in some papers, which we should talk about the papers at some point too. What were these flipping burning papers that we were talking about? <laughs> no one knows, unfortunately. Uh Billy Burns, that guy, golly, he covered it all up. I know, I know. There were a few papers, actually Burns was probably a part of this. There were a few papers that had escaped the flames and uh, Burns or somebody put them in a pouch. An assistant attorney general took them to Jess Smith's funeral in Ohio in a sealed pouch and gave them to the executor of Smith's estate who happened to be Harry Doherty's brother, a man named Mal Doherty. Ugh. Mal Doherty opened it up, took one look inside, and burned the papers on the spot. Oh, man. So, there, yeah, there's no—the <laughs> the good evidence is gone, unfortunately. Oh, boy. Do we know that time frame between when the breakup happens and when this something happens to get him back into this apartment? Yeah, it's roughly three weeks. Okay. So, Smith— said, okay, I'll, I'll go out to Ohio. He spent some time with Roxy Stinson. Eventually, Harry Doherty came back out west to Ohio again. And for a time, it seemed like they had made up. Even if Smith wasn't going to be welcomed back to Washington, while they were in Ohio together, they seemed to fall into their old habits. In fact, Smith was writing, even though, again, he had no job on the government payroll, he was writing letters on Justice Department stationery. And I've seen like I've seen those letters in the Library of Congress. But then they had a, a blow up. There was a shack. They actually called it the shack. It was a like a hunting lodge that they shared at a place called Deer Creek, Ohio. Harry Doherty was taking a nap. Somebody came up on what he said urgent business with Harry Doherty and Jess Smith woke him up and Harry Doherty just threw a fit, threw a tantrum, cursed Jess Smith probably with every every word in the book, told Jess Smith that he would have to walk the 20 miles back to Washington Courthouse on his own. They never really made up after that. Smith asked Doherty for permission to go back to Washington, just collect his papers, wrap up his affairs before returning to Ohio. So that's how he ended up back in Washington. They were not spending time together in Washington. In fact, Hardy knew what was going on, obviously, and invited Doherty to stay in the White House, in a guest room in the White House, while Smith was in the the apartment that they shared. And uh, that's why Doherty wasn't there that night. So Roxy said all of this to the committee? She told all, that's right. Wow, okay. So everyone is horrified, both at the corruption of the attorney general's office and within the administration. And then on top of that, 
just how terrible Harry Doherty had been to this man he was supposed to be close to. And now the man's dead. Mm -hmm. How does Wheeler tie all of this together? There's so many pieces that can lead headlines in the newspapers. What is the narrative that he has put together to present to the Hearst papers and everybody else? Well, unfortunately, he never really does write that narrative. He, In fact, his committee never issues a formal report uh, the hearings drag on for for several months, but it's really the it's the newspapers that are doing the work there. Mm. Wheeler's witnesses were all over the place. His next star witness was this really shady detective who worked in the Bureau of Investigation, a man who had you know spied for Germany during World War One against his own country, but who nonetheless found his way into the Bureau of Investigation under Harry Doherty. You know, Wheeler was basically going after anything he wanted. I know that for Wheeler himself. It must have been particularly disturbing to see the lengths that Harry Doherty would go to. This was a man capable of anything. I mean, Harry Doherty fought back against Roxy Stinson's testimony by deploying some blackmail that he'd been holding over her. He'd basically been telling her not to testify because he had pretty good evidence that she had been carrying on an affair with a married man in, no. uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. And a few days after she testified, he actually, his lawyers, he and his lawyers in a formal letter to the Senate deployed that blackmail openly accused her of having an, of an affair. So Wheeler saw this and realized that this man was capable of anything. And so he probably wasn't very surprised when a few days later, maybe a week or so later, he found that he himself, Wheeler himself, was in the legal crosshairs of the Justice Department. Okay. What I was wondering is, Wheeler, who just seems like someone who is a holier-than-thou, and <laughs> do we find any skeletons in his closet, or does Doherty? Well, so Wheeler was generally an, an upstanding uh, upstanding politician. He was, a, he was a man of principle. It was hard. There were Justice Department agents, Bureau of Investigation agents, crawling over Montana for weeks. And they really, for the longest time, struggled to find any dirt on Wheeler. There was a, a longstanding rumor that he had been carrying on an affair with a, with a married woman, and they had gotten into an automobile accident together. They found that, but they couldn't find anything to, to really substantiate it. Ultimately, they, they started looking into his professional career because he was at the time, even as he was a U.S. senator, he was still working. He still had a private practice as a lawyer, which wasn't uncommon at the time. Today, that's very uncommon. But at the time, it was actually pretty usual for a congressman or a, or a senator to carry on private legal practice. Mm -hmm. And they found what might be considered a, a conflict of interest there. And they spun it up into something really big and uh, wow. went after Wheeler with that. You would think that a senator not would be protected necessarily, but with everything that's happening, you would think that Doherty would be backing off so that it doesn't look like he is persecuting the person who is saying he just wants to get down to the truth on behalf of the American people. Does this not smack to everyone in the government as vindictiveness and somebody who is now trying to, you know, create a vendetta with the person who is really shining a light on the corruption? No, Kate, you're on you're onto something there. He was <laughs> as as a schemer, as a manipulator behind the scenes at, you know, at twisting arms, Doherty was a master, right? He was mm. the most ruthless, most cunning political fixer in Washington at the time, probably. But yeah, maybe his political instincts weren't all that good, right? He probably would have been better served to, <laughs> to stay quiet, especially not you know, just go after the Wheeler's star witness, which 
there was a big backlash to that, right? I mean, even at the time, people thought it was just unseemly for an attorney general to attack a witness's personal character like that. And of course, that was gendered too, right? Especially you can't yeah. go after a woman. Like Wheeler said it was an unmanly thing to do, is what he said. So this did not, this revelation that she was likely having an affair with a married man in Ohio, this did not seem really to discredit Roxy in any way as far as the committee went or the public. You know, it did not. And and Good. all that I can say, yeah, all that I can say is maybe he thought that this was the way he maintained his credibility because he operated largely by collecting information on people and yeah. much like J. Edgar Hoover later on and holding it over them. And maybe he needed to demonstrate that, hey, if I have this threatening, if I have this compromising information and you, you know, cross my path, I'm going to deploy it. And he had to, he had to do that. So the committee does nothing, you said, by the end of this marathon-long hearing where you have people coming in and you said it dragged out for months. Did the newspapers lose interest at some point or did the committee, did the Senate lose interest? Ultimately, sure, things petered out, but but not before Attorney General Doherty was forced to resign, right? So Wheeler, Wheeler won. He got his big victory, okay. which partly explains why he never issued a report. The other reason he never issued a report is because Doherty and his brother, Mal Doherty, dragged on the proceedings. So Mal Doherty was the president of what was called Midland National Bank, which is where Harry Doherty and Jeff Smith did their banking. Hmm. And so when Wheeler was looking for hard evidence that they were involved in shenanigans, he needed to see their, their bank ledgers. And as the president of the bank, Mal Doherty, Harry's brother, refused access. He, he defied a Senate subpoena. The Senate ended up sending its sergeant-at-arms to Ohio to arrest Mal Doherty wow. and bring him before the Senate. The federal court stepped in before that happened. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And this is now 1927. So this is about three and a half years after this is all happening. The Supreme Court ultimately upheld the Senate's right to issue subpoenas and compel testimony, which was a huge victory for Congress, right? For Congress, for the, the power of congressional oversight. But because that took so long, the investigation kind of petered out. So Harry Doherty is gone. He resigns and he's no longer the attorney general. Where does he go? So he begins a, a decades-long bitter quest to restore his legacy. He's essentially banished from Washington. Nobody wants to deal with him anymore. I don't think he holds any office uh, ever again. I don't think he even has any legal practice. He writes a self-serving uh, memoir with actually the co-author of The Klansman, the, the book that became Birth of a Nation. It's <laughs> hmm. an interesting choice for a co-author, right? Oh, golly. <laughs> Writes a self-serving memoir trying to justify his actions and gets a little bit into the Jess Smith story, but that's essentially all that he does. Do you think that the collective consciousness in the 1920s and maybe for decades going forward, however long this story lasted, was that Harry Doherty murdered Jess Smith because he knew too much? I know that that version of the story still survives to this day. I mean, I actually <laughs> studiously avoided watching it because I, I didn't want to mix up fact with fiction at all. But I know that this storyline made its way into Boardwalk Empire, the HBO mm. series. Mm -hmm. Harry Doherty and Jess Smith were a, a big part of Gore Vidal's novel, Hollywood, which was set in the Roaring Twenties around this time. Again, I avoided that. So I don't actually know the specifics of how the story is told there. Mm -hmm. But I know that people still wonder about what actually went down. 
What did his family think? And well, I'm assuming Roxy thought that Harry Doherty was responsible for Jess's death. Again, she claimed that he was morally responsible. She th- okay. she said that given everything that she knew about how he had been acting, how he had been putting his affairs in order, you know, how he had actually gone to his Justice Department office and gathered up all the compromising information and burned those papers, even if he'd, he'd felt betrayed and probably anger, despair at being betrayed, he wanted to do one final favor to Harry Doherty. He still loved Ugh. the man and he sacrificed himself. I mean, he burned the papers and then he got rid of himself. You know, he was, of course, he knew that he was uh, a witness to all of Harry Doherty's crimes. And the legacy of the Harding administration is really a, such a mixed one, is it not? I mean, I, I don't even know if I'd say mixed. It was, it's a pretty bad legacy. They Sure, I mean, people forget that Warren Harding helped push through the first international disarmament agreement. Mm-hmm. So there's an accomplishment there. You know, one of the first things he did after taking office was he he cut the the federal income tax rates. I mean, he he accomplished things that that some people <laughs> that some people could celebrate. You know, this scandal in the Justice Department was just one of many. There was, of course, we haven't even mentioned Teapot Dome, which was in the, the Warren Harding administration, which was a bribes for oil rights scandal. There was another huge scandal within the the Veterans Bureau, mm. um, where people were taking advantage of you know America's veterans. There was all of this corruption happening. So I think history's judgment against the administration is pretty severe. There have been attempts recently to revise history's judgment of Harding himself. There is evidence that in his final days, Harding wanted to expose the scandals, wanted to clean up his administration. Again, there's no evidence that he was personally complicit. So recent biographers, including very interestingly, John Dean, who was the White House counsel under President Nixon, who happened to come from the same town in Ohio, Marion, Ohio, as Warren Harding. Hmm. Um, he wrote a biography of, of Warren Harding. He more or less absolves him of responsibility. What do you think the reaction was between Harding and Doherty when this all came down, when he had to resign, when it was all said and done? This must have been a massive embarrassment on every level for Harding to see how many of these criminals, because really that's what it comes down to. Whatever happened with Jess Smith, it really was that Harry Doherty allowed people to not be prosecuted who probably should have been in prison from violent things and really bad things. Well, for Harding, he uh, he was lucky in that he was spared of the embarrassment of this because he he died actually the very first days of August 2023. We're coming up on the centennial of that. So he died before any of these scandals emerged. So he did not have to see his own reputation tarnished. He did not have mm-hmm. to see his his friend and political mentor, Harry Doherty, uh, forced from office. All of those problems fell on his successor, Calvin Coolidge. Mm -hmm. And this was a problem that Coolidge didn't want, especially because this all happened during an election year. Mm. And I think if I remember right, Coolidge was sort of, was he not like sort of a breath of fresh air where it was very much like the country just came off of all of these terrible corruptions and there's prohibition happening and everything. And then Calvin Coolidge was a little like the old grandfather who was going to stabilize everything. Yeah, he was a little slow, I think, to... (laughs) Certainly certainly was slow to force Doherty from office. He did it for what he considered principled reasons. He Mm. thought Doherty was Warren Harding's choice for attorney general. He was his Mm. friend. If Harding was going to stand up for anybody, it was going to be Doherty. So Harding was the man elected president, not Coolidge. So Coolidge thought 
it was his responsibility to stand by Doherty. So he stood by him for a long time to his political peril, right? I mean, he took a political hit for doing this. He thought it was a principled stand. But yeah, Coolidge, especially with Teapot Dome, he acquitted himself pretty honorably. He actually stepped in when Harry Doherty refused to investigate the Teapot Dome scandal. Coolidge stepped in, said, Doherty, you're no longer responsible for this. He appointed special counsel, a Democrat and a Republican, to investigate hmm. and actually called the Republican into the White House and said, however it shakes out, you got to follow follow the leads wherever they go. It, it doesn't matter if the interior secretary who's responsible is a Republican, just go after the, the wrongdoers. So Coolidge acquitted himself pretty well, I think. If Jess Smith had not died, either by suicide or murder, or whatever happened to him, do you think any of this would have come out. Do you think Harry Doherty would have just retired at some point and faded into the woodwork with money that he had, with, you know, the power that he had? Or do you think at some point this had to have been revealed? I think it was more likely to come out if he'd survived. Hmm. It was hard for Wheeler to prove anything conclusively because Jess Smith was the one firsthand witness to a lot of these transactions, right? Mm -hmm. Roxy Stinson was recounting things that she'd heard secondhand. Mm -hmm. So it would probably would have come out quicker. In fact, I think the plan was to hold Jess Smith up as the scapegoat. Wow. Okay. What is the lasting message that you wanted people to take away from the book about government, about corruption, about interpersonal relationships where people are supposed to trust one another and someone is betrayed? What I hope people take away from it is that is the importance of a free press and congressional oversight in reining in a, an out-of-control presidency or administration. Sometimes bad political actors truly do operate above the law, right? Doherty hmm. never spent a single day in jail for, for any of his crimes. He avoided jail time because he was a shrewd lawyer. He was really, but also because of his high political office, right? As, mm -hmm. as attorney general, he was kind of shielded from that. But Senator Wheeler kind of shrewdly recognized that and said, well, even if he can't be convicted in a court of law, we can convict him in the court of public opinion. And he did, right? His investigation shocked Americans into caring about what the attorney general was doing, what was happening in the Bureau of Investigation, what was happening in the Justice Department. And he relegated Harry Doherty to the you know, ash bin of history. That's a lesson that we can have for today when we're worried about maybe we can never send this bad political actor to jail, but we can at least discredit him in history's judgment. What ends up with Wheeler? What does he do? <laughs> so Wheeler has an interesting story after all of this happens. You know, he started out as this fierce progressive and then kind of wound up as a cranky conservative. He opposed the New Deal. He opposed FDR's court packing scheme. He most infamously opposed American intervention in World War II. He was aligned with the America First movement, was friends with Charles Lindbergh. That led, of course, to charges of Nazi sympathy. Hmm. His reputation really suffered over the decades, despite this real triumph early in his career. What maybe a lot of your listeners might be familiar with is a direct consequence of this story, a movie called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Hmm. It was loosely patterned after the story here, right? It was, in fact, the original screenplay was titled The Gentleman from Montana, which was Wheeler's home state. It's about, you know, this young, naive politician arriving in the Senate and having the tables turned on him when he, when he tries to take on a, a corrupt older politician. Uh, that's exactly what happened to Wheeler. And when Frank Capra premiered the movie in, in Washington in 1939, he shared a box with Wheeler. Oh. <laughs> they watched the movie together. <laughs> you know, really going back to the victim here and ending with the victim, Jess Smith, there is a blind devotion there that just seems 
so sad, whether or not it is a physically intimate relationship he had with Doherty or just, you know, emotional, to put that much trust in someone, then to be betrayed must have been just the final moments of his life, whatever caused his death, must have been so painful for this man who it just seemed like, even though he probably was complicit in a lot of the corruption here, really seemed devoted to someone who it doesn't sound like really deserved his devotion. No, he truly didn't deserve the devotion. And that's something I wonder, I've wondered about whether Smith realized that it's a tragedy. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.